0: Hey, Simon. Good to see you guys. Yeah, tonight we're looking at that parable. We just read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, So working through our series on stories with Luke. Now, this is an amazing parable. And just two points before we get right into it. Uh, The first point is that this is a very famous parable that is very negative about the rich man. And so I just want to point out that there's 57 parables that Jesus has, about 27 feature a rich man, but only two of those 27 are about the dangers of wealth. So just a bit of perspective there. And the two parables about the dangers of wealth are both in Luke's Gospel. We looked at the rich fool two weeks ago, and I thought tonight it would be good to look at the rich man and Lazarus because they're a bit of a pair so this is really hard on those of us who are wealthy and really challenging us, but I wanted to keep that perspective and we'll come back to that at the end. I also want to give a little um, summary of one of the main ideas I want to talk about and that is that wealth without generosity is easy. You know, um, If we're wealthy but we're not generous, well, that wealth will elevate us, accelerate our lives, make us selfish, isolate us. So that's just a little an acronym that that, uh, is worth keeping in mind as we look at this parable tonight. This is what happens when we have wealth but we're not generous so we'll look at that and it'll become clear as we go through the parable. Now what has really helped me this week is this book on Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes to give me some of the details of the Middle Eastern context of this parable and sometimes the translation doesn't quite bring out what's there so I'll be mentioning that as we go through okay you ready all right so the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and this is the first scene let's just read that again verse 19 there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and he lived in luxury every day at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. We'll read the rest in a minute, but there's a few contrasts here between the rich man and Lazarus that we need to notice. Obviously, the rich man's rich and Lazarus is poor, right? That's pretty obvious. Um, Another really cool contrast is that the rich man is not named. He's only called the rich man, no name, whereas Lazarus has a name. And what's interesting about Lazarus' name is uh, it means God helps. And so imagine coming up to Lazarus, okay, he's begging, he's got sores all over his body, uh, he doesn't look in very good shape and you ask him what his name is and he says, God helps. And you wonder, well, if that's how God helps people, I'm not sure I'm interested (laughs) in that kind of God. And so his name is kind of, well, what's going on there with Lazarus' name? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Anyone else interested? That's kind of interesting, yeah? I think we're meant to go, whoa, what's going on here? Um, And then the rich guy, uh, he's clothed in purple, and purple came from seashells. The little bits of purple that you see on seashells, they took that from all these shells and used it to make purple dye. It was incredibly expensive. And so that's why purple is the colour of kings. This rich man also wears fine linen, and that's an actual loan word from Egypt. It's that really sheer sort of see-through clothing that you see in Egyptian ancient art, right? That stuff. It was incredibly expensive cloth made from flax, and this rich man is wearing this incredibly exquisite and expensive... Actually, it's probably his undergarments that are being referred to here. You wanted to know he's got very expensive underwear, right? Uh, it's what Jesus seems to be saying. <laughs> so this is the era before the Industrial Revolution. So clothing is incredibly, expensive. I used to wonder, you know Achan in the Old Testament stole all, all this stuff from Jericho, and he stole this huge gold bar, he sto- stole this bag of silver, and then he stole a suit of clothes. And I've often wondered, well, what? Why steal a suit of clothes? Now, imagine a robber these days going into a mansion, getting into the safe, stealing a million dollars and then going upstairs to try and find the best suit and take that as well. What? You wouldn't do that. <laughs> Why is Achan stealing this suit? Well, the suit back then was probably worth the equivalent of 500000 right? And so in the first century... Clothing could be incredibly expensive and this is what's happening in the case of this rich man. Very, very expensive clothing Um, and you knew someone's status by what they wore and it really announced to the world your status, the the clothes that you wore. And these clothes here are the, the top of the range. And what's striking about this guy as Jesus portrays him is He wears his expensive clothes every day. And imagine wearing a tuxedo every day, right? What's going on with this guy that he wears those expensive clothes each day? And not only does he dress to the nines every day, he's feasting every day and Jesus really lays it on thick. He feasts sumptuously every day which means to the Jews who were listening to him, they would have picked up that that means he doesn't give his servants a Sabbath day because they're constantly cooking and serving him every day. So he's not caring for his servants. And so then, of course, he's not caring either for Lazarus. He's walking right past him and not giving him anything. Um, and we don't even know from the text whether he's even aware of Lazarus's ex- existence uh, whether he even ever glances at Lazarus, we're not told. So if you're Jesus' audience at this point, what are you feeling about this rich man? Oh, you know, basically he's the major scumbag of the universe and Jesus is really laying it on thick. There's a couple of other contrasts here. One is the rich man is clothed in fine linen, whereas Lazarus is clothed or covered in sores. So both of them are kind of covered. Right? Another contrast is between the dogs and the rich man because Jesus says the dogs lick Lazarus's clothes. Now this is saying that the dogs were caring for Lazarus. In 1994 they discovered 1,300 dogs in Ascalon on the coast of Israel dating back to the 3rd century before Christ. These 1,300 dogs that were buried were related to a center of healing. And what seems to have happened is they trained the dogs to lick the sores and wounds of those who were ill. And we know now today that, of course, saliva of dogs has antibiotics in it, so it's good. And so in Jesus' day, they knew this kind of thing too, and saliva was healing. Of course, that's why dogs lick their own wounds. Uh, So here's another contrast. The dogs are doing what the rich man should have been doing. The dogs are caring for Lazarus, not the rich man. And another contrast, Lazarus longed to be fed from the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Who's eating those scraps? (laughs) The dogs. So the rich man is feeding his dogs, but he's not feeding Lazarus. So at this point, we're pretty much hating the rich man. So then that goes to scene two. There's only two scenes. Okay, now the scene shifts to the afterlife. Both Lazarus and the rich man die, and even here there's a little bit of a contrast in their deaths. The beggar simply dies. There's no mention of him being buried. He was probably thrown into a common grave. But the rich man has a fancy funeral. And so now they're in the afterlife, the rich man in Hades, in torment, Lazarus with Abraham in heaven by Abraham's side. And the rich man calls out, verse 23, and looks up and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Now this is very interesting. Remember we weren't sure whether the rich man ever even looked at Lazarus. Now we know that he must have looked at Lazarus, because he recognises Lazarus as he looks up into heaven. Um, so Jesus of course, this is a this is a parable, right? This is just Jesus constructing a parable to make a point. He's using poetic license here. It's not like there really is a chasm between heaven and hell or that you can talk across the chasm, right? So let's, let's be careful um, how, we, how we interpret this parable. But we notice that the rich man notices Lazarus and so during his life he knew Lazarus. So what must have happened is the rich man had just walked past Lazarus every day and not turned and helped him. And I think one of the most interesting things in this story and it's really crucial is how this rich man now relates to Lazarus. Jesus' audience of his day would have, you know, they would have expected that now that Laz- now that the rich man was in Hades he would have apologized to Lazarus. He would have called out, sorry, Lazarus, I should have you know, shared some of my food with you. And that the people of Jesus' day would have expected that in the parable. But no, this rich man is still treating Lazarus like he did when he was on earth. You Notice that? He now wants Lazarus to come and serve him. In other words, remember that elevation that happens from money. Money elevates our life, accelerates our life, it makes us selfish and it can isolate us and, let, and if we're not generous with our wealth. Well, that elevation that he cultivated on earth now is continuing in this afterlife. In other words, his character is unchanged from what it was when he was on earth. And so he wants Lazarus to come and serve him. In fact... He doesn't even address Lazarus. Notice that. He he addresses Abraham and asks Abraham to order Lazarus to come and serve him. So the gall of this man is incredible. Well, let's start unpacking some implications here and I want to also mention some other contrasts in this story as we go. Basically, Jesus is saying that our lives are a trajectory that we're all feeding C.S. Lewis in his book The Great Divorce talks about a person who when they're young they have grumps occasionally. Sometimes they're grumpy. But if they don't work against that, if they don't learn to become like Jesus, grumps can then take over their lives progressively (laughs) and so that the person is no longer separated from their grumpiness, they become a grump. And C.S. Lewis says, if that can happen in 80 years of a person's life, particularly as we get older, what about if it was a thousand years in hell or more? That we were giving ourselves, that, that we were, um, let me put this in the right way, that we were continually becoming more of this dark side. So in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a favourite book of mine, I thought I deleted that, but there it is. Um, Still there. Um, Yeah, just stay on that one if you don't mind, James. I mean, this is my, you know it's my favourite book. I keep talking about it. I read it every year. It's now a play, which is kind of exciting. So you can go and see it, The Great Divorce. It's based on this parable. It's based on this parable. And what happens in The Great Divorce is that phantoms from hell take a bus trip to the borders of heaven. So the parable is Lazarus is actually having a... Sorry, the rich man is having a conversation with Lazarus across the chasm. But in C.S. Lewis's book, people from hell go on a bus trip (laughs) to heaven and have conversations with people from heaven. And on the bus trip, they're fighting. They get there. It's amazing. Can we go? Yeah. So they arrive in the borders of heaven. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And they have all these conversations, next one, with people from heaven. In the book, the people from heaven are nude, but here they've got clothes on. So the phantom from hell. And what's interesting is C.S. Lewis draws out this point that Jesus seems to be making. These people from hell try to get these glorious people from heaven to rebel against heaven and join them in hell, right? That, that is the people from hell can't break out of their self-absorption, their self-worship. They can't receive joy. So instead, they try and get these angelic, wonderful, glorious beings from heaven to come down to hell with them and rebel against heaven. You know, And they try to order these glorious people around, even though they're just phantoms and they've got nothing. And it's ridiculous. And C.S. Lewis says, actually, they hate heaven. They are unprepared to submit to God and receive joy because they will not give give way uh, to the rule of God over them. They want to stay ruling themselves. And so C.S. Lewis is saying, you know, they're totally locked into the darkness that, have, that they've been choosing all of their lives. It's like Romans 1. Uh, Paul says... That God punishes us by giving us what we choose. He gives us over to the choices we keep making in our lives. Letting us do what we want and become what we want. Therefore God gave them up. For this reason God gave them up for dishonourable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. Interesting. Uh, This phrase is repeated three times. God punishes us by letting us have exactly what we choose. In this life, he'll give us over to those things and then on into the next life. So hell is a continuation and intensification of the habits and patterns we begin in this life. What does God do with a self-centered human heart? In the end, he'll let it go. That person will not turn to him. He'll let it go. And he will give that self-centered human heart what it wants, and that is separation from God. Your freely chosen false identity goes on forever. In the end, we get what we choose, or we get what we go on choosing. In the end, God will give us what we choose, and and, and the end result of that will be hell. So the rich man on earth is isolated and self-indulgent. That That. That's the lifestyle he has. He keeps making this choice to be isolated from others and to be self-indulgent. And then in the afterlife, he's isolated and self-indulgent. He gets what he chooses. And when you think about it, it's a kind of craziness. He kind of goes a bit crazy in in Hades. He loses touch with reality. I mean, he's still trying to get Lazarus to serve him. He's still treating Lazarus as an inferior to him. And there's something about the isolation that we can get ourselves into through self-absorption where we can go a bit insane. We can lose our sanity. By the way, this parable is meant to make us nervous. And, you know, Jesus is trying to confront us with our reality. Maybe we're insane. Maybe we're a bit crazy. And we need to come to our senses like the prodigal son who when he got what he chose, came to the end of himself, uh, experienced a kind of hell on earth and came to his senses and returned then to his father. This man doesn't do that, this rich man. But we can. We can repent. And look at the poetry here. The, The gate that the rich man created to keep, people like Lazarus, away. Now in this parable has become a (laughs) gulf, a chasm. Do you see that? The gate that the rich man used to put a distance from him and Lazarus and others, that gate has now become this great chasm that cannot be crossed. In other words, it's just continuing on with the same idea. So the gulf he created on earth to keep himself safe from messy, dirty people, ended up keeping him away from people, period, when he really wanted to get close. Just a quick example of this. Uh, Glenda and I uh, used to be involved in student ministry, Newcastle University, and we had a house across the road from the university. And in our street, just a few doors down, there was a Muslim family from the Moldive Islands. And it would have been easy for us to treat them differently than we treated the other students that we were trying to reach out to. They were Muslims, they were from the Maldives. But Glenda wanted to treat them the same, to slow down and spend time with these Muslim neighbours. Remember, wealth accelerates and I had to slow down and take the time to be with these Muslim neighbours. And I was drawn out of my isolation uh, that you can get from ministry sometimes because Christian ministry can isolate us just as much as wealth. And we can be all consumed in our own little world, even in ministry. You know? And I was involved in reaching university students for Christ, but I was focused on young adult university students. And I was the potential of that is I'm so isolated and so absorbed into this little world. But here was this Muslim family And the Muslim family were living just three or four doors down, (coughs) virtually on our doorstep. Right, Lazarus is on this man's doorstep. Their names were Nailah and Shakur and their children. And they didn't know anyone much and so we reached out to them. We took them to the Blue Mountains for a day trip because the Maldives has nothing over two metres where they come from. So they'd never been above two metres on land. So we took them up here and, and back. We were living in Newcastle the, at that time. And Alim was car sick because he just hadn't been on very many car trips anywhere because it that doesn't happen on the Maldive Islands. And uh, like we took them to Glenda's parents' farm. They'd never seen a farm. We spent time with them and they ended up asking us to go to their son's circumcision party. Uh, and <laughs> uh, I, I've never been at anything like this. 13-year-old boys get circumcised, and then they have a party. And what that means is the, the boy's bed is in the middle of the living room. All these people come over and have a party around the bed. And there he is. There's a string from the ceiling that holds the sheet up in the right place because it still hurts, and he's like in agony. He's just been circumcised, and we're all having a party around him. So we went over to that. Glenda did some uh, patchwork quilt with Nyla and, and a few others. And one night we had um, Nyla and Shakur and their friends that they met through uni over for dinner. It was cool. It was a Buddhist couple, a Hindu couple, a Muslim couple, and Glenda and I, and then all of our kids. <laughs> so Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim and Christian couples. And we, it was hard to work out what to cook. Some don't like bacon, some don't drink milk. And, and so we did damper and soup. <laughs> and we ended up like... The whole night, we couldn't stop talking about God. We couldn't stop talking about God because of the nature of the different religions coming together. Men over here, women over there, as their custom was. <laughs> and then Nyla and Shakur went back to the Maldives and he eventually left her for a younger woman. And so she asked us to sponsor her to move to Australia because she had nothing. And we didn't. you know. And we're, and we're just trying to search our souls into why we did not... <laughs> sponsored this woman. It's, you know, it's one of the greatest shames of our life, I guess. But the point is, reaching out to others in need helps us from being isolated in our ivory towers. You know, we learnt about their world. We gave them a bit of dignity. We formed a little community in our street between us. And that's just a quick, everyday example. Um, the, ge- the generosity when we're generous, we share our lives, we share our wealth, we share our time, generosity is the antidote to elevation, acceleration, selfishness, and isolation. Makes sense? And what Jesus is relentlessly doing through this parable is he's saying that the f- our fundamental orientation in life, you know, whether we're generous and continually generous or not, our fundamental, what we're doing in our life, what we're choosing in our life, extends into eternity. That life is deeply connected and Jesus uses the par- poetry of the parable to tell us this. And we can't approach money in any right way until we understand this, that how we use money, we need to do that in the light of eternity. And it's one of the most important things about how Jesus approaches money that he says in chapter 12, sell, all, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and if you do, you will lay up treasure in heaven. Right? What we do with our money now in, in, in giving to the poor means we're laying up treasure in heaven. And this parable seems to be saying exactly <laughs> the same thing. Think of your life as a trajectory. The whole idea of sowing and reaping. In Galatians 6, Paul says, We reap what we sow. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And one of the things Jesus is saying about money is that the act of giving to others, being generous, that transforms our hearts and prepares us for eternal life. It's one of the strangest things that he says about money. Where you give, this is Luke 1234 where you give, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money draws your heart in. And we think, well, I'll get my motives right first and then my giving will flow out of my motives. And Jesus says, no, money is so powerful, you give and your heart will follow your money. It's the exact opposite of what we expect. In other words, one of the reasons we need to maintain actively a generous life is to continually tune our hearts into eternal things. Not just giving away money, giving away love and time. Of course, it's all related. But it's so striking that Jesus focuses on money so much, particularly in Luke's Gospel. He goes for the jugular vein of our hearts. (laughs) Money is so powerful. If we can get money right and being generous, we'll get our hearts right. What's interesting is, and this is true every year, people who make under 10000 a year give 50% more than people who make over 100000 a year in terms of the percentage of their income. And that breaks down to under 10000 they give 3% of their income and over 100000 give 2%. That shows the power of money. It begins to take hold of our hearts and isolate us and elevate us and make us busier and make us self-absorbed. Um, it takes over us unless we learn to be generous and live a life of generosity the only way to get rid of the power of money to corrupt us, the only way to get rid of that corruption of money is to be giving money away, giving it away. Now our rich guy, the isolation we choose can become the isolation we can't escape. The isolation we choose can become the isolation we can't escape. Rowan has been befriending, I think, Jacob's his name down our street. He bought Rowan's MX-7, 5, and, um, boy, um, and he, uh, he I think it's like your 19th car you've like bought and sold or so, and Jacob's just down the street from us, I think he's in a youth house or something, he's obviously not privileged in the way we are, and he bought this car off Rowan, and Rowan said, well, I've got another MX-5 uh, under the house and uh, you can use that for parts, right? So ryan has got this other car down there and so come over anytime you want right? and so this guy came over and one of the times he came over the missional community was having its family meal and so he joined in with a family meal and of course that meant they couldn't do their Bible study they couldn't do half the things they probably were going to do and he just talked and talked and talked so that right, mm-hmm. for the whole night and, and they listened and they asked questions and they included him and, and isn't that great? And Jesus is saying, yeah, be that. Don't be isolated in your ivory tower. Include others who are less fortunate. Give them space. Love them. Share your life with them. This is what we're trying to do with missional communities. Now there's a couple more things that happen here in this story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the dogs were licking the sores. So the dogs are using their tongues to lick Lazarus' sores. And now the rich man's tongue is parched. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there's a poetry to life. There's a deep connectedness between this life and the next life. Uh, and it's unseen. And Jesus is saying, get x-ray vision. See how life how God sees it. Let me show you one more thing. The wealthy man feasted sumptuously at his table and then in the afterlife... This is easy to miss, but in the old King James um, version, Lazarus was deep in the bosom of Abraham. But if you're careful with this, you realize that that's, they were reclining at table, and you recline on your left elbow, which means he was on Abraham's right. So he was at the seat of honor in the heavenly feast. So there were no crumbs from the table for Lazarus in this life but in the next he was in the place of honour at the heavenly feast. And also there was no table for Lazarus in this life but in the next life there's no table for the rich man. So there's all of these reversals going on. Jesus is genius, you know. Another way of saying this is what I do every day shapes the person I'm becoming. What I do every day shapes the person I'm becoming. And we need to fight against the spirit of the age, which says, no, we we can do things in isolation, it won't impact other things. You know, it's like that saying in America uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it doesn't. You know, you watch porn on the internet, that won't stay there. That's going to impact your life in all kinds of other ways. So it's not true. We reap what we sow. Um, or another way to say it would be righteousness is a path. And sometimes I think we forget this. Righteousness is a path. Let's be feeding the right trajectory. So again in um, Luke 16 verse 9 Jesus says, make f- Use your money to make friends for yourself in this life so that in the next life you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What we do in this life continues on and impacts the next life. Let's not go down a path which will lead us away from God. Let's stay on the path of generosity, of sharing our lives with others, which is keeping us on the the right path. We reap what we sow. So now remember the rich man didn't have a name. Anybody been thinking about that? Uh, We'll close with this. And I think this is why uh, Jesus keeps him nameless. Whereas... He names Lazarus. I love this picture. The angel of God comes to take Lazarus uh, to heaven after he dies. Uh, So, you know, God helps was his name and God was helping Lazarus. So I love that. Through the dogs and through through the angel, God was helping Lazarus. So his name was true. But the rich man is nameless. Because when you take away his wealth, there's nothing there. His wealth has so distorted and warped him. And again, it's wealth without generosity. Wealth with generosity is the best way Jesus has to describe what his father is like. And that's why Jesus repeatedly uses wealthy men in the place of God in 25 of the other parables. Because wealth with generosity mirrors the father's heart Wealth with generosity is living the gospel. When we combine wealth with generosity, it's a beautiful thing. It's what God does. God is so wealthy, but he is so generous with that wealth. The story of the prodigal son, the wealthy landowner, gives $100,000 or whatever he gives to his son. He knows his son's probably going to squander the money, but he gives... This money to his son in the hope that his son will come to his senses and return, which is what happens. And that's a picture of God. He sends his son. He gives of his wealth in the hopes that we will return to our senses and come back to him. So that's God. God is not like this rich man in this parable, quite the reverse. He breaks out of his ivory tower (laughs) and comes and dwells among us. So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when we are wealthy. Nothing wrong with wealth, but when we are constantly being generous with that wealth. But to be wealthy is to stand on a knife edge. There is a danger in wealth. Wealth is like an extreme sport. Nothing wrong with extreme sports. They're just very dangerous. The wealthier we are, the, the more we need to practice caution in our extreme sport by being generous. If we're constantly generous, for me, I've got this amazing house. That means for me, constantly using my house for others, having people over, sharing my house. With people, It's a constant lifestyle choice or my heart can start going down the wrong track. Why is the rich man nameless? Well, the final result is his identity is so tied up with his money. Take away his money, nothing left. <laughs> in hell, this man is still clinging to his rich persona in the way that he treats Lazarus. And Jesus' point is that the rich man has no identity now other than this sense that he's wealthy, even when he's not wealthy. <laughs> he is so deluded. Whereas Lazarus is a complete person who is loved and helped by God. Do, I wanna, do you want to ask any questions right now? Is that okay? You get the call. You're dating my daughter, you get the call. right? Um, alrighty. Any any questions there? <laughs> <laughs> it's on Facebook, so oh, it yeah. must be public. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't waste much time, man. <laughs> um, any questions there? Uh, yeah, Bruce. Uh, I don't think there's a connection to the other Lazarus, but that doesn't mean there's not. But I haven't seen one. Yeah, Kristen. yeah. Yeah, Chris like and rich I kind of reminded me of Yeah. 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 And if they're saying that, you know, there's people coming in to take photos and again and saying how they want to be speech. Yeah. And give them that twine that originally matched these. So yeah, it's, it's not just sort of handing out money, it's relationship. Yeah. It's Yeah. So yeah, what what can we do to care for Aboriginal Christians or Aboriginal people? in the Blue Mountains and reach out and in, in Penrith. and So David Kings, I hope, will come. He's an Aboriginal man and a Christian here in the Blue Mountains. He's going to tell us what's really going on in the Aboriginal world here in, here in our area. So I'm going to have uh, breakfast with him in a couple of weeks and we'll, we'll plan that so that we can then actually follow up and, and, and not be isolated in our, our enclave but actually see the people that who, who are in our neighborhood that need to be reached out to. Yeah. I just, the question rang for me is like, you know, you talked about the gate being the thing that separates separates Yeah. man and it's like what what are our gates? Okay. that separate <coughs> yeah. us from those that are in need. Yeah. What what do we put up that prevent, that kind of isolate us from those that are in need? Yeah. A good question. So, what are our gates that we separate ourselves off from others unnecessarily? Um, what could they be for each of us? That's a good question to ask. Dave, so it's also interesting with that sort of thing. Like, when we were in Indonesia, we lived in an area initially that was not very wealthy, and then they put it, when we ended up street, they put the new, mall in the city. Yeah. And within about three years, the land there would be preventing it from being very sort of sought after. Yeah. Mm. But as soon as they became wealthy, um, you couldn't even get to the park because they security. But I just feel like it's striking for us actually a whole culture when you live in a country that's poorer. There's that yeah. not even so much over our culture anymore to offer people to even a glass of water when you do the work. We were struck by that in the same <coughs> you, know, you No one in Indonesia would let you come to their house without that list of water, and usually more than that, usually, they have to come to you. Yeah. Yeah, having people in our homes is—I know you've said before—it's just so crucial. We have people in our homes. There's something about that, you know. We're really welcoming them in. So that we brought Nyla and Secure into our home, you know, and then we were in their home. That's just so important. I think the church—we can have walls, can't we? And we are so in our ghetto how do we break out of that so that we actually the gospel poor are hearing the the good news yeah right yeah yeah um, yeah Yeah. And, you know, obviously you're <coughs> not gonna have an ongoing relationship with those people, but just offering hospitality when you've got no benefit, I think is still a powerful conversation. Yeah, I've heard of John O having Jehovah's Witnesses come in, come in and you know <laughs> ends up having this wonderful gospel conversation and uh, you know, there's yeah. Good on you, Jono. Yeah. I think sometimes you were talking about how freely chosen false can go Yeah. You might think of that negative but sometimes it might be not believing the truth of goodness. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we one not the truth. Yeah, okay. And that leads to negative things, yeah. Okay, great. I thought the same thing, Dave, but I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to take the emphasis off money because I think it's really important to be speaking on money. But I felt challenged by that too uh, tonight when you're speaking about how generous I am um, in my heart towards other people, meaning do I take offense, do I nurse offense? So that's another way of... Mm. Yeah. I the the best to Yeah. Great. Well keep thinking about it and keep applying this to your own life. Andrew's going to pray.